As I mentioned last week, we're going to start in just a new series, just be three messages in this series. Uh, we've done this uh, series before, it's called Across the Spectrum. Some of you absolutely love the series, some of you, it freaks you out. Uh, but it's a series where we take a uh, theological topic that is often discussed, and we just look at all the different views of all the Christians who follow Jesus uh, and the way they look at that. And we're going to do that with... Um, the topic of God and suffering today. Okay, I did hit the right button, so maybe forward the slide. Is it open in PowerPoint? This is just the theme of every message I start. The clicker doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah, it is working. And I didn't hit the wrong button this time. Yep, power's on. The light works. Okay, well, this is the signal. I'll, oh, well, maybe they did that. I don't know. I, if I look at, if I point this, that just means the four days. There's a lot of slides today, anyways. All right. <clears throat> so why this series? Uh, first of all, the Bible tells us, and Jesus affirmed this from the Old Testament, that we're to love God with all our heart and soul and mind. And so there are times when we do more heart sermons. There are times when we do more soul-oriented sermons. And there are times when we need to actually get our minds to work and think through things and think through issues. Um, God doesn't want us to be people who don't think through things. And, uh, and sometimes there's tough questions we wrestle with in, in the faith. And we should never, ever be afraid to ask questions and to think through stuff. Sometimes churches are afraid when you ask questions. Uh, we're not afraid of that here. Uh, we... Uh, we believe in vulnerability, and to be vulnerable, that means you need to talk about some of the deeper questions you have. And this so happens to be one of those questions that a lot of people wonder about, and that is the question of God and suffering. Uh, secondly, we need to listen to other viewpoints in order to grow. I know we love, love, love our little echo chambers and our little boxes where we just study and learn and reaffirm the stuff we already know. But real growth actually happens when you are challenged by other ideas and other opinions because it helps you solidify your own or maybe helps you change your views. But if you want to grow, you need to listen to other people's ideas. And absolutely most important, and this is the main reason I've done this series a couple times, is because we need to listen to different Christian theological views in order to move towards empathy and unity. Uh, this verse is one of the theme verses of this church. And that is John 17, where Jesus says, I have given them the glory you gave me, which is a pretty impressive statement to begin with. That the glory God the Father gave Jesus, that he's also given that to us. Now, why have we received the very glory of God? Well, it says, so that they may be one as we are one. That just as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one, that we are to be one. So this is not like a superficial unity. This is a deep unity. I and them, and you are on me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. In other words, like, one of the main missions of the church is dependent on our unity. That our unity is to be such a sign to the world that it's like, whoa, something's going on, and those people really do love each other, even though they don't agree with each other. In order to get here, we need to be able to look at another Christian who has a different theological view than us and say, you're part of the family of God as well. And, uh, and so we're going to look at these different views today. And the, all these views come from various 
uh, folks in the Christian tradition. And this is dealing with the problem of evil. Problem of evil is often stated with these three things that the problem is that they, it's like, how do they work together? And that is that if God is all powerful and God is loving and good, and then there's the reality of suffering. That if God is, is all loving, then why does he allow suffering if he's all powerful? And, and what we'll see that any answer, at least religious answer to this question, will always try to take one of these things or two of these things and flex them a little bit because all three can't fully work together. So some will try to flex the idea of what is meant by suffering. Some will try to flex what is meant by God being loving and good. Some will try to flex that God is, is all-powerful. And so um, the biggest piece about actually really talking about this subject is that we have to go beyond our sort of first-world problems. Uh, North American Christians, often when they talk about God and suffering, often talk in terms of sort of daily, you know, I got a flat tire at work, or I got fired from my job, or I can't find a place to rent, which are real issues. But it's easy to look at those issues and say, oh, you know, God's in control, and it's all part of God's plan. But, but the real depth of God and theology and suffering comes when you actually deal with real issues of suffering. Because what works with a flat tire must also work with some of the most horrendous things that have ever happened on this planet. As one person who survived the Holocaust said, after it happened, he said, theology must now be done in light of a little children, child being gassed in the gas chambers. In other words, whenever we talk about God and suffering, it's got to work with the worst atrocities of this world. It's, it's got to work with little Polina who... Grade four was killed this week in the trying to escape of the war that is going on right now. It's got to work with little Lodi, who just died last month, just over one years old, just died in her sleep. These kind of senseless, meaningless deaths. I mean, how does God and his love and so-called being all-powerful, how does, how does it work in that? It's got to work with some of the biggest things that have ever happened on this, this planet, like the European settlement of the Americas, which directly and indirectly killed over 56 million people. I mean, how, how does God work in that? I mean, a lot of that was caused by the diseases that the settlers brought in. I mean, couldn't have God stepped in there and just tweaked and gave, you know, a little bit of immunity to the indigenous people? I mean, how does that work? Or the rape of Nanking, where, you know, up to 80,000 women were sexually assaulted and 200,000 Japanese killed. Or the Holocaust, where 11 million were killed and Rwandan genocides, where... You know, one tribe was fighting against another tribe and almost a million were killed and all the like Stalin and all these other things and you know, all these horrible things that happened to children and women and, and men and kids and like how does this work with God being all loving and, and he's supposed to be powerful and I mean, those are big, deep questions. And again, we're not just supposed to not think about these things. And so here's some views. I'm going to look at five this one's gonna, I'm not going to talk long on because it's not really a view, but for some, the question of God and suffering is just a mystery, and they say, just leave it at that. Don't even think about it. Don't put your mind towards it. Uh, you just cannot solve it. And there's, there's partly true that we cannot fully solve this. There's no view that perfectly answers all the questions. There is a mystery about suffering, but at the same time, God wants us to think, and he wants us to ask questions, and he wants us to think this through, especially in the reality that that one of the reasons a lot of people leave their faith is actually over this question. And if someone comes to you and says, I don't understand how God could allow this to happen, 
I mean, what do you think about this? And if you just say, oh, it's all a mystery. I mean, nobody knows. It's not very helpful for somebody who's actually honestly struggling with this. We are to think through this, and we are to ask the hard questions. Now, I'm going to talk briefly about sort of the four main views that I see in Christianity. It's not all of the views. These are way oversimplified and not very nuanced. Uh, because literally you could take any one of these views and spend years studying each one. They're so complex and nuanced. So these are very broad. All of these views are people who love Jesus, who see the Bible as inspired, who um, you know, are part of the family of God. All of these views have their verses that they like to highlight in the scripture. And what we'll see is that every view, theological view, always kind of puts the spotlight on some verses and kind of dims the light on other verses. Because if you're actually honest with the Bible... There is no consistent story to God and suffering. And that is why we have all of these different views. And so the four views we're going to quickly look at today. And what I try to do in the series, I don't try to argue for one or the other. I just try to present them because this series is to get you thinking and to you to think through these things. The first view is God is absolutely in control of everything. God predestines every event of suffering. Second view is God is in charge, but not in control. God allows suffering to happen for the ultimate good. The third view is God self-limits his power and control. Therefore, God cannot stop all suffering. And the fourth view is God is love and by nature cannot control suffering by himself. And so let's look at the first one. That God is absolutely in control of everything. God predestines every event of suffering. So this view says... That God designs, ordains, and governs everything without exception, including all events of suffering for his own glory. And this would often be seen in the Protestant tradition on the reform side, often sort of from the, the Calvinistic perspective. Uh, their sort of confession, the Westminster Confession says, God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. So no matter what event it is, no matter the flat tire or, you know, the, the molestation of a little kid, that God predestined all that to happen. That it's all part of his overall plan and overall design that God is behind every event of good, but also every event of evil. Uh, John Piper would be sort of a modern day teacher, theologian who would teach this view. Uh, he says, God is sovereign over the nations and over all the rulers and all the satanic power behind them. They do not move without his permission and they do not move outside his sovereign plan. So even Satan and demons, uh, they cannot move without God's permission. So nothing happens without God's permission. In fact, it's more than that. God is actually predestined, ordained. It's kind of beneath every event that's ever happened, good, bad, the most tremendous suffering, the most happy moment that God is all behind it. Uh, one reform ministry says, and this is the, the, the challenge of this view, obviously, we could already think about this, is like, does this make God out to be evil if he's predestining all these horrible things to happen? Well, they have an answer for this. They would say God never does evil himself, but he stands behind it indirectly. Uh, he stands behind it indirectly, but he direct, directly stands behind good. The Lord can never be blamed for evil, but evil does not take place apart from his decree. We cannot fi uh, finally, uh, finally explain how this can be, but the Lord's ability to ordain evil without being morally responsible 
for it shows his greatness. He can adorn evil without compromising his character. So they make a, a distinction between God has predestined all evil and designed it as part of his plan, but he's not the one who carries it out, so you can't blame him, is kind of how they get over, over that. And like all these positions, they got verses to point to. Uh, they will point to some of their more famous verses. Uh, Amos chapter 3 says, Is a trumpet blown in the city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? So they would say, look, God is behind actually every disaster in the background. Or Lamentations, who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Or uh, one of the favorite verses of Isaiah 45, 7, where it says, God, uh, I form, this is God speaking, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. And so they will say, see, God is actually behind everything. It's all part of his plan, and he ordains all this to happen. And it's all ultimately for God's glory in the end. So the worst things you could ever think about on this planet are ultimately for God's glory and somehow our ultimate good. Like Randy Alcorn will say, if you come to see the purpose of the universe as God's long-term glory rather than our short-term happiness, then we will undergo a critical paradigm shift in tackling the problem of evil and suffering. So this view will often say, don't think about those moments of suffering. You've got to think about the big picture of the universe. And then, you know, somehow God is glorified in the end. So um, kind of this example sometimes is used. And this is a, an example that Corey Temboom used. It's used by the next view as well. And they would say, look at this piece of embroidered uh, tapestry. And in the back, you look at it, and it just looks like a tangle of cords. It looks ugly. It doesn't make any sense. And it looks horrible. Why would anybody like that? And they would say, that's the reality of suffering in this world. But then she would take this thing and turn it around, and there would be a beautiful crown on the other side. And they would say, this is the big plan. And when, if we could just see the other side of all the suffering that God has ordained and planned, that it would look beautiful in the end. So that is the, the first view. Uh, Johnny Erickson is one who holds this view. She was someone who was put in a wheelchair in an accident, young, and she sees it as all part of God's plan. And so she says, God cares most not about making my life happy, healthy, and free of trouble, but about teaching me to hate my transgressions and to keep growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. Uh, God lets me continue to feel much of sin's sting through suffering while I'm headed for heaven. And this constantly reminds me of what I am being delivered from, exposing sin for the poison it is. And so, you know, God allows and, and predestines this to teach us and to, and to grow us. So people who kind of think this will often use these kind of phrases when it comes to suffering. They will say, it's all part of God's plan. God is in control. God is maturing us. God is disciplining us. God is punishing us. Uh, this is for God's ultimate glory or for our ultimate good. But they would say, just in the end, no matter what happens, from the small to the greatest suffering, God has predestined it and he's governing, governing everything that happens in this universe. Now, the second view, or I should say, I'll point out a resource for each of these views. Uh, anything from the Reformed side of the faith would kind of lean this way. John Piper, of course, uh, is probably the most popular people, uh, uh, character people know. You can get his book. The second view says, no, no, no. <laughs> This makes out God to be evil. It seems like God is evil if he's predestined all this to happen. So this view says, God is in charge, but not in control. 
God allows suffering to happen for the ultimate good. So there's a similar theme that they would say that God allows evil for an ultimate good or for the ultimate glory of God. But they would say God never, ever, ever predestines evil to happen. That God doesn't want evil to happen. He doesn't design it to happen. But the reason it happens is because God has given us free will. And so evil comes from us as fallen creatures and humans that I can choose to do something evil. God doesn't want that to happen, but because of our free will, he allows it to happen again for a greater good. And so they will use verses like this to show that God can't predestine all evil to happen because there's verses that seem that God doesn't even want that to happen in the first place, like Jeremiah 32. It says they built high places for Baal in the valley of Ben-Hinnon to sacrifice their sons and daughters to Molech. Though I never commanded, nor did it enter my mind that they should do such a detestable thing. And so they would say, look, this didn't even enter God's mind. Obviously, he didn't predestine it if he didn't command it or enter his mind. This idea that God predestines all evil, they would say, does not make any sense. Or Acts chapter 7. Must you forever resist the Holy Spirit? That's what your ancestors did, and so do you. So did God predestine people to resist their spirit and then gets mad at them for doing what God has predestined? Again, they say this does not make any sense. This only makes sense if God has given us free will to choose. So they would say God has not predestined evil and suffering. Suffering comes from the fall of man, demons, and the fallen world. God does, however, allow it for the ultimate good. And so when suffering does happen, it's still God saying, am I going to allow this to happen or not happen? You know, should I allow this cancer or not allow? I will allow it for the ultimate good. If it's not for the ultimate good, then I, then I will not allow it to happen. So God's still totally kind of in charge, but he's not in control. They would use the illustration of a classroom where a teacher is in charge of the classroom, but he's not in control. In other words, the teacher wants the classroom to be loving and good and filled with nice, friendly teenagers who love each other all the time. But a time, you know, a teenager might pass a nasty note, do something mean to another kid. You know, a teenager could even stand up and before the teacher could stop it, could punch another kid in, in the face or something like that. The teacher is not controlling every single thing that happens, but is in charge of the classroom. So they say that's kind of like God. He's, he's in charge of the universe, but he doesn't control everything because he has given us free will. And so they got verses to support this position. Isaiah 30. What sorrow awaits my rebellious children, says the Lord. You make plans that are contrary to mine. You make alliances not directed by my spirit. So here's something they would say, that these people are doing things that is not ultimately God's primary will. God is saying, hey, you're doing things that are not my will. <laughs> Why? Not because he's predestined it, because of his uh, because God has given us free will. Uh, Luke chapter 7, the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves. So here God is wanting them to follow his purpose, but they are not doing what God wills, and uh, yet God is allowing it. And so they would say, the reason suffering and evil happen is because it's our own choice to reject God's loving ways. It's our own choice to do something evil towards someone else. Isn't God predestining it, but it's God allowing for free will. But again, this position still says that God ultimately allows or not allows every evil event. He's given us free will, 
But ultimately, God could stop something if he wanted to, because in this view, God is still this, this absolutely all-powerful being who ultimately could say yes or no to any event. So should this car accident happen? Yes or no? Well, I'm going to allow it because there's some ultimate good. Or, you know, should this person, this child be molested? Well, I guess for ultimate good, I'm going to allow it this time, but not this time. This time I'm going to intervene and stop this one. And they might use a verse like Genesis 50, where this is, this is Joseph, who had all these horrible things happen to him because of his brothers, and uh, he suffered greatly. And in the end, his brothers, uh, Joseph says to his brothers, you intended to harm me. I mean, they threw him in a pit. He was sold as a slave. He spent years in prison because of what his brothers did. Joseph says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. And so in the end, because of the suffering, Joseph ended up in Egypt and being second to Pharaoh, and he, he's able to save his whole family from famine. So Joseph says, you know, God allowed the suffering for an ultimate good to save my family. And so this view would say that the reason God allows any suffering on this planet is for God's ultimate glory or ultimate good. And so this view still would say, you know, when suffering happens, you know, the war right now in Ukraine would say, you know, God's in control. God's in control of it all. Or God knows what he's doing because God you know, could stop the war if he wanted to, but, you know, he's going to allow it uh, because he's working in other ways or ways we don't understand. These people, maybe when it comes to someone sick, will tend to pray for another person like this. God, if it be your will, would you heal them? Because ultimately, it's up to God's choice whether he heals or doesn't heal, allows or does not allow. If you want um, a book on this, this is sort of, sort of the typical evangelical view, that, that view. You could look at Alistair McGrath's book, Why Does God Allow Suffering? Third view. This one bridges off the, off the idea of free will and says, uh, God self-limits his power and control. Therefore, God cannot stop all suffering. So God respects free will and cannot intervene every time someone is about to misuse free will to cause suffering or else free will would be an illusion. God is working alongside us to end suffering. So this view would criticize the last, the first two views by saying if God has given us free will yet still can choose to stop that cancer or allow that cancer or stop that car accident or not, he's still allowing suffering to happen or not, then we actually don't really have free will because God is still intervening. So this view says for God to actually uh, respect our free will, he self-limits itself. To give us free will, he actually says, I will not control everything on this planet because if I do start controlling things, then they don't actually have free will so it's like a self-limiter. Like if you limited your car to only go 50 kilometers an hour, you know if you took that limiter off, you could go 200. But because of the limiter, it can only go 50. So God self-limits himself in this world to respect our free will. So God cannot stop all suffering because he must allow for free will. Uh, Tony Campolo says, God has chosen not to be in control of everything going on in this world. In Christ, we find a God who deliberately gave up power to control everything in order to save the world through sacrificial love. We have to accept that God, the God we have 
who was willing to give up power and give up control in order to live out love for us, that is what the cross is all about. So out of love, God actually gives up power to control all suffering to truly give us free will. So they would say, God actually cannot stop all suffering. They would challenge this idea of the greater good because the other views always talk about the reason God allows suffering is because of greater good. The reason God didn't heal your cancer or allowed you know, that person to die in that accident was for a greater good. And they would say, well, sure, there are some cases where there's a greater good. If you get a flat tire and it spares you for an accident, sure, that's greater good. But 11 million people killed under Hitler? I mean, how can, you, how can there be a greater good out of that? Or, you know, all the children who were taken from their families in the Canadian residential schools and, you know, the thousands that have, were killed through that. I mean, is there actually a greater good doing that to little kids? They would say, no. God can work good. He can work some good, but that good doesn't always outweigh the suffering that was involved. And so they would challenge that idea and ultimately say that when suffering happens, God is not the only equation. So we cannot say, God, why did you allow that to happen? They would say, it is a lot more complicated than that because God has self-limited himself. He cannot stop all suffering, but he certainly can influence and he, he certainly can work in partnership with us. This idea is, is very much that God partners with us to bring forth miracles in, in the world. So they would, this view would talk about 10 different variables that go on in this world that, um, that affect suffering. Uh, God is, is the biggest variable, but still if suffering happens, it's not always because of God. In other words, they would say that God always wants people to be healed. Uh, God is, oh, doesn't want suffering to happen, but it happens again because of free will and is self-limiting. So they would say, there's, in any suffering event, there's all these variables at work, and this is why it's complicated. We can't blame God for suffering. They would say God's will is a variable. Uh, they would talk about the, the, the faith of the person. So for praying for relief from suffering, it has to do with, with our faith. We see that in the scriptures. It has to do with the faith of the person or the group praying it has to do with the number of people praying. It has to do with persistence of prayer. It has to do with the presence of sin. It has to do with the human free will. It has to do with the evil spiritual beings. As the Bible says, that, you know, uh, Satan is, is the god of this world. He, he's got power. And then there's the power, a number of evil spiritual beings. And then there's this fallen world. So there's all these variables at work. And God is kind of like the main variable, the main influencer but he can't always stop suffering because he self-limited himself to really respect our free will. So when an accident happens, these folks, you can't just blame God because there's all these other things at work. God is always working for life and for love and for goodness, and he would be working to end the war in Ukraine, but, but he actually can't outside of partnership with us and all these other variables going on. If you want a book that describes that view, you can look to uh, Greg Boyd's book, Is God to Blame? Now, the last view is very similar to this one, but there's a kind of a major tweak. And this view says that God is love and by nature cannot control suffering by himself. And so this view says, wait a second. Why don't we start at a different spot? Most of the other views, especially the first two, always start with God's power. It always has to do with God's power and he's in charge and he's sovereign. This view says, why don't we look at this differently? Let's start with God's love. Everything else flows from God's power, whether he allows or not. This one flows out of God's love. And so they would use maybe a verse in, in Matthew where it says, Jesus called them together and said, 
You know that rulers in this world lord it over their people, and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, it'll be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And he talks about how the Son of Man came to serve and not be served. And they would say, why do we always take this idea of power and power over people and always put that on God? It's like, it's like, you know, we want that in our own ego, so we make our God out to be like that. And they said, no, no, God is a loving God. And so they would say, because God is love, by very nature, he cannot control. So the previous view said God could control because he's all powerful, but when he created us, he gave us free will and self-limited himself. This view says God from all time cannot control because he is love. So the top thing is love, and that defines his power, which means he can't control. The other views are God is powerful, and that defines his love. This view would say because God is love, God cannot stop all suffering this view would hold to a similar idea as those 10 variables that this world is complicated. So this view rejects the idea God won't or doesn't stop suffering. Those words suggest God deliberately self-limits. To hurting people, this sounds like God could have prevented their unnecessary suffering, but freely chose not to do so. God cannot control because uncontrolling love comes first in God's unchanging nature. Because God can't deny the divine nature, God cannot control anyone or anything. As one a scholar theologian who holds this view says, God always loves but cannot prevent evil single-handedly. Both creator and creatures are indispensable in overcoming evil. God cannot prevent evil single-handedly and creatures cannot prevent it without God's help. So again, it's this partnership idea. That God is not wanting evil to happen. He's wanting love to flow, but we have to partner through prayer, partner through our own efforts of stepping in and loving and serving and being kind to people and praying against the enemy and, and those kinds of things. This view would use, uh, th this, this illustration is one of the, the uh, ones I read about. So the Oklahoma City bombing. Uh, when this building was bombed, there was, you know, hundreds of people killed, I think, or 170, I think, and 700 injured, and uh, there were two guys uh, that were charged with the bombing. And uh, McVeigh got a death sentence, and, and the other fellow, he got life in prison. But there was someone else who was charged in this bombing. Um, his name was Michael, and he did not create the bomb. He did not plant the bomb. He did not, uh, wasn't a part of the actual bombing, but he was sent to prison for 12 years. And the reason he was sent to prison for 12 years is because he knew the bombing was going to happen, but did not say anything. He knew it was going to happen, but he didn't stop it from happening. And the justice system said that is evil because you could have stopped it and you didn't. That is evil. And you're going to prison for, for 12 years. And this view would say that to say that God is up there and either self-limits himself or that God is up there allowing or not allowing, God still could stop something. And if we think it's evil when someone doesn't stop evil here, how in the world can we not look at God and say he is unloving if he could actually have stopped that from happening? So they would say, the only thing that makes sense of God's love is to say that God cannot stop it because he is love and his love defines his power and by nature love cannot control, they would, uh, this view would say. And of course they got their verses of um, God I mean, seemingly trying to do everything he can to stop people from, from suffering. 
but he cannot fully control it. Like Ezekiel 33. As surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their evil ways and live. And here's God's cry, turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, people of Israel? So God trying to influence them out of suffering, but he cannot fully control the situation because he is love. Or maybe Matthew 23, where Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem, thinking about the fact that it would be destroyed. Yeah, I mean, he can't, he, he can't like sovereignly stop it because they would say, God is love and works out of love. And if you want more on this view, you can read uh, Thomas J. Ord's book, who's a theologian who wrote a book called God Can't. Now, a couple more comments and we'll be done. Um, our theology of suffering comes out of often our story. Sometimes we wish that, you know, my theology of suffering, it's based on the Bible and mine's the only right view. Well, all of these views would say the same thing <laughs> uh, because our view is not only based on how we interpret the Bible, but it's also based on our experiences. It's based on how we're wired. It's based on how we see God. For instance, I personally know people who, who hold the first view of suffering, that God predestines all evil to happen, and they find actually great comfort in that because as Viktor Frankl in the, in the Search for Meaning, he talks about if you can find meaning in your suffering, it helps your suffering. And if you somehow can think that, that my suffering is ultimately for some greater good and it's all in God's hands and he's completely in control, that can actually bring comfort for some people. And I know people who are very comforted by this idea that God is sovereignly in charge of everything, including evil and suffering and Satan and demons, that they just rest in the, the fact that they hate the pain, but somehow it's for an ultimate good, and they just like, this is actually comforting for me. For others, that's actually repulsive. Christians reading the same Bible will see these views as, I just can't stand that. Like uh, Jason Jones, for instance, who wrote the book called Limping But Blessed, who at one time held this idea that God sovereignly predestined every evil to happen until his little child wandered out of his house one day into their SUV, closed the door, and was stuck in there and suffocated to death on a hot day. And he had to rethink his theology because this is what suffering does. I mean, we have to rethink it. When, when like, And he was like, you know, why couldn't God have caused the neighbor to walk by or, you know, me to catch him. I mean, God could have done the tiniest little thing to save this boy's life, and it seems so senseless. It does not make sense. So in the end, his view of theology shifted. And you will find a lot of times when people go through tremendous suffering, their theological view shifts because all of a sudden, for the first time, they got to ask hard questions. And so instead of looking at each other with different views and saying, what's wrong with your theological view? Just say, again, as we talked about last week, a better question is, what is your story? What is behind your views of theological suffering? He says, when my child died in a senseless accident, my theology did not make sense anymore. What good could come from a, dying, a child dying? If this is how God works in the world, God isn't the loving father I thought I had. God is the monster in my nightmares. It's interesting how Christians can take this perspective and this perspective and they look at each other and say, that God's a monster. <laughs> but at the same time find comfort in their views. But either way, all these views would say this, and I'll just end with this, that first of all, God understands our pain. Jesus came down, died on a cross, was tortured. He understands your pain. He understands he's in you. He is weeping with you. He understands your pain. Secondly, all these views would say God is redeeming your pain, that 
God is always working for good. Doesn't mean that good is always going to be greater than the suffering, but he's still working for good. Number three, God is working for good and he asks us to join him. That we are to be partnering with God to relieve suffering in this world. And lastly, that this life is not the end of the story. And I'll just finish with this verse from Revelation. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow, or crying, or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new.